Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. When I'm teaching, my students and I talk a lot about the problems we see in the design field, from the templatizing of so much design work, to the perils of design thinking, to the proximity to commerce, to inequalities and working conditions, to the histories that often overlook practitioners operating outside of mainstream Western practices. But what comes up more than any other topic, and honestly, the thing that is behind a lot of those other topics that I mentioned, is capitalism. The philosopher and cultural critic Frederick Jameson's often repeated quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, to me, rings true in a design context. In many ways, it's hard to imagine design outside of capitalism. But design isn't a product of capitalism, or at least it doesn't have to be. What would design that is anti-capitalist look like? Or maybe even better, what would design that is post-capitalist look like? This is the subject of Matthew Wazinski's fascinating new book, Design After Capitalism, Transforming Design Today for an Equitable Tomorrow. And on this week's episode, I invited Matthew on the show to talk through the book and these questions. Matthew is an associate professor and the graduate program director in the Ullman School of Design at the University of Cincinnati, and is a PhD researcher in transition design at Carnegie Mellon. Design After Capitalism is sort of part revisionist history of design and capitalism, part case study for models of alternative practices, and part toolkit for designers to begin thinking about what a post-capitalist design practice might look like. I don't know if you feel this too, but I find these conversations really tricky sometimes. They can be so kind of theoretical and heady and big ideas. Both capitalism and design for many of us is all consuming. We can't escape them in our lives and they influence so many of the decisions that we make each day. And so in this conversation, I hope we balance both the theoretical and the practical. We talk about what these words mean and how they shape us, but we also talk about them at the base level, how we can actually implement these ideas in our work today. Matthew was so fun to talk with and is somebody who does a really nice job really kind of breaking this down for us. And so I found this conversation so fascinating. It's one that I've thought about many times since we recorded. Speaking of capitalism, I love that this podcast is and always will be free. I want these ideas to reach as many people as possible, as easily as possible. And this happens because of generous listeners who support Scratching the Surface on Patreon. Patreon supporters help keep the show going while also getting some nice bonus content, including full transcripts of each episode, bonus interviews, and exclusive monthly newsletter filled with book reviews, recommendations, design news, and more. We offer three tiers, students for $3 a month, patrons for $5 a month, and superfans for $10 a month. Um, and all of those get uh, all sorts of bonus features. If you like Scratching the Surface and want to see more of it in the world, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surfacepodcast to sign up and support the show. Thanks for listening. And here's me with Matthew Wazinski. talk about the title of your book. I, I read the book and loved this book. There's so much I want to talk about with you. But I think to start, I'd actually like to talk about the title, Design After Capitalism. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could talk about those three words and what those three words mean to you, design, after, and capitalism, and how that sort of uh, you know frames the argument or frames sort of your thesis here. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, obviously picking the title of a book is, uh, you know, it's not an accident that those three words came together and, uh, and certainly thought about what they mean together. Um, the design part may be the, the word design may be the one that I have probably thought the most about in my life, but have not spent <laughs> as much time maybe trying to pin down exactly why I picked that one in writing this book, other than um, I have been a practicing designer for over 20 years. Uh, all my degrees say design on it. I teach <laughs> yeah. design in a university. So uh, it's, it, is the, it is the thing that I, I feel that I know um, in the ways that uh, you know something well, so well maybe that it's hard to describe or define. And right. probably everybody who's been pressed to define design has squirmed around that a bit. 
Um, but the kind of design that I'm that I am interested in and that I'm describing, I do try to clarify a little bit, which I I, I believe has to do with professional fields of design, and I also add in there at the scale of the human body. And I'm trying to differentiate a little bit from architecture or um, urban and regional planning, um, partly because I don't do that. I don't, I don't know a lot about those things, but I also think the, the ways in which those design practices um, intersect with people's daily lives and particularly with what we might call the political economy, how people uh, think about their everyday lives, how they um, access their everyday lives, how they uh, perform the kinds of things that they're doing, you know, either for work or in their personal lives. Um, I think it's different when we think about the design of, of symbols or information systems or objects right. or products right. and those kinds of things. So that's the kind of design I'm talking about. Um, at some point, and we could probably get into this later, I came to the conclusion that capitalism, as I understood it, was, was different than what it actually is and the way that it actually intersects mm. with professional design practices uh, today. And, and by this, I mean, you know, a full two decades into the 21st century. Um, and so I, I, I did wonder a little bit about using this, this term after capitalism. You know, is it, is, it, is it the wrong move to say the thing you're trying to get beyond <laughs> and right, use that as right. part of the name, right? Because it, it only responds back to it and reflects back to it. And there's a whole, um, in doing research for this book, a whole um, critique out there uh, about this capitalist-centric way of thinking, that we always map everything back to capitalism, which makes it somewhat inescapable to think beyond it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a whole uh, literature out there around this term after capitalism in fields like political science and philosophy. Um, so it has a meaning outside of design, and that was important, I think. But I also wanted to make sure that the word capitalism did stay uh, in the title because I wanted to really put design and capitalism into conversation. And I mm. felt that that was something that I just haven't seen taken up um, rigorously enough. Um, and to say just a little bit more about that, I, I think it's been, you know, it's, it's my entire career as a designer has included um, various conversations and, and discourses around sustainability ecological Mm -hmm. issues and this kind of thing. Of course, they've become more heated uh, recently. And uh, and I think more recently, the design discourse around decolonization has become uh, another important and significant um, kind of critical way of looking at design practices as they have been and as they are. And yet I think the 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 other system that we call capitalism is directly tied to these two things and sometimes gets glossed over when we focus on one or the other. So um, I felt it was important to keep capitalism in the title to make sure that as designers or people thinking about design or practicing design or studying design read the book, it gives them a way to keep thinking back to the ways in which the idea of capitalism or the logics of capitalism or the kinds of structures that it puts into place map into design practice in ways that we probably almost never notice. And I want us to notice those so that we can think about uh, the ways in which we might move beyond some of those um, aspects which which we may feel are problematic. I have a series of questions kind of based on on what you just said there. And the first one was your sort of hesitancy to put capitalism in the title. And I, I, I kind of want you to talk a little bit more about that because early in the book, you say that you do not have a political agenda uh you know you're not you're not saying we're moving towards socialism for example or some other new form but just about moving beyond or after capitalism and you know to 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 be honest when i read that i sort of like rolled my eyes I, like i said we talked you know before we started recording i studied critical theory in grad school and all the frankfurt school people and you know was kind of interested in socialism and marxism and you sort of saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Can you talk about this idea that it's just, you're, you're offering kind of uh, ideas of a post-capitalist world and not necessarily telling us where we are going to, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I, I will say, I mean, uh, the hesitancy to include the term uh, probably comes from a different, a couple of different positions. Um, One, maybe just the fear that if I start talking about capitalism and design, people just throw up their hands and be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> right. like I'm not even going to deal with this. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. and I actually, I have to say, I have heard um, 
maybe not directly in response to this book, but I've, I've heard or, or read out there people talking about the ways that, you know, this is an impossible argument that design yeah. is yeah. only an instrument of capitalism. It cannot exist outside of capitalism. Now, that's an actually an easy one to counter because there has been actually existing state socialism <laughs> in this yeah. world. Yeah. And we can say, like, was there graphic design and was there product <laughs> design in the Soviet Union or in Yugoslavia? And the answer is yes. So <laughs> design right. does not necessarily require capitalism, but I think that only points to how sort of fully subsumed the idea of design within, I will say, mm. sort of my position sitting in the United States in the early 21st century um, has become, that, it, that its, its core function is about competitive advantage in a market. What else could there be? So, mm -hmm. uh, so some hesitancy just around that, that it's, it's, it's easily written off. The statement that I make about where I'm coming from is, is not to say, um, I don't want to say that I'm, that I'm apolitical, which would mean that I have no, that, I, that right. somehow I think design is neutral or that I'm neutral or the book's neutral. That's, that's definitely not the case. But to make the point that I didn't, I didn't arrive at the, the sort of, um, I guess, the way of thinking or the topics I'm interested in in this book because of those other ideologies. Um, I became aware of the, the topics and sort of the concerns and my position on them based on being a designer. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, and, and I think it's different. It doesn't mean that I'm unaware of those things. Um, but I, I have, you know, I, I, I've um, throughout my career, both uh, in, in moments when I've been, you know, working in, in cultural institutions, working in academic institutions, but even just, you know, friends of mine, you know, who are, uh, I would say, avowedly, you know, Marxist or, or other specific flavors of Marxism or socialism. And, you know, I sometimes roll my eyes too, like, oh, come on, it's not all about that. Right? Right. Like, right. it's not everything right. comes down to, you know, sort of uh, the, the dialectical materialism <laughs> argument of everything. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, so I, I think that the, the argument is that, is, or I guess the position is that there are these arguments, and I don't think that they're inconsequential, and I don't think that they're um, inherently dead ends, but that I also think that we, can, we need to look at where we are and to think about how we position ourselves from where we are to where we want to go. And part of that means, um, you know, from the position of, you know, writing, for, for writing, <laughs> writing from the position of inside uh, design practice and design education, um, right. how do we craft a longer term vision of where this is going and what this is for? Mm. And this is a part of the reason that I think it was important to write this whole pretty lengthy first section of the book, which is looking at a historical yeah. view of the ways in which capitalism, uh, Western economic theory and design have crossed paths over the last you know, roughly three to 400 years. Right. Uh, because I think we have to take stock of that to understand how we've gotten to the present so that we might think in long terms towards the future. And I want to talk. I want to talk about that first section in a big diagnosis and critique, is what you call it in the book. But I have one more, um, one more kind of question, sort of about the title, maybe, or about sort of the big ideas. I, I promise this whole conversation will not just be about why you called your book "Design After Capitalism." And I do want to be clear um, that uh, I, I I do not think you were saying that design was was neutral. I think when I first read that, that's where I thought you were. I was afraid you were going to take it there. Mm. And I, I totally came around to your position as I read. I just, I, I want you to, to know that and listeners to know sure. that. Um, I, I, I totally relate to what you were saying about people kind of throwing their hands up and saying like, Oh, I just, I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around this. I don't want to talk about that. Like capitalism is so big. You bring up this idea very early in the book of that Timothy Morton's idea of the hyper object, which, mm. um, you know, are these concepts that are just so big, you know, that we can't wrap our head around. Climate change is sort of the prime example everyone talks about. Capitalism is a hyper object. And what you write in the book, which I, I can't believe I never thought of before, is that design itself is mm. also a hyper object. And I'm, I was feeling that even when I was preparing for this, this, of, this is so hard to talk about these things. <laughs> and what you do in the book, and you mentioned this earlier, is you really focused on design at the human scale or the scale of the human body. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more before we kind of get into the meat of some of these ideas about sort of the hyper objectness of design, the pervasiveness of it, that we can't kind of separate ourselves from it, while then also zeroing in on this human scale design which is also really easy to think, well, what difference does that make? Because that's still within this like bigger system. How mm -hmm. did you kind of negotiate those scales? Yeah. 
I mean, not easily, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think I think to to, to use uh, Timothy Morton's um, his language and his thinking about hyperobjects was was uh, I mean, it was helpful as as a, as a way to just be able to, I guess, in some way, table the unthinkable scale of, for example, climate change. Mm. You know, and and to say that, and he has some great language in there, and. Uh, I tried to adopt some of those, some of those logics as well, you know, thinking about, you know, it's, I, it's summer right now <laughs> in North America, it's very hot. We've had this, you know, heat wave record breaking heat. And it's like, and every time you touch that air conditioning dial, you're in this feedback loop with that, the massiveness of that system that started a long, long time ago, touches, you know, parts of this planet that you will never see, but you also feel it on your skin and you are in a feedback loop with it. And so we, we, we have these, you know, all of these interfaces, if we could use that word, or touch points with these enormous systems, even when they're too big to think all at once, we can pay attention, I think, to the ways in which we intersect with them. And so um, we can uh, think about that in terms of capitalism. And of course, if we're actually practicing designers, or even if we're not, I think even if we're people who are um, in some ways users or consumers of designed objects or system, Mm -hmm. which is most I think most people mm-hmm. um, that we we have opportunities to make certain kinds of decisions and to and to interact in 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 small but I think cumulative ways um, with these systems. And so, if you're a designer, though, I mean, if you're if you're actively doing this work, I mean, if you're spending your days, you know, thinking about how you will disrupt or otherwise affect or change. Uh, another person's or a large group of anonymous other people's everyday lives, um, you know, that's a really interesting kind of like powerful proposition of what you're doing. Um, And how do you really think about the um, sort of the depth and the breadth of that? And then if you add on top of that and like, what is all of that for? You know, why are you doing that? (laughs) How does that sort of sit inside this other, you know, these other massive systems like climate change or like social inequity or like capitalism? And so uh, I, I do think it's, it's too much to think all at once. Um, so it has to do with identifying those touch points and trying to stitch them together to create a kind of network of, of intersections where these things align. And so, so that actually kind of leads into the book is divided into these three sections, which you mentioned earlier. The first is diagnosis and critique, which is sort of a... a I sort of read that as like a revisionist history in a Mm. way of both. It's sort of a revisionist history of design and a revisionist history of capitalism. It's looking at the history of capitalism through the lens of design and then looking at the history of design through the lens of capitalism. I think you do a really great job of sort of threading the needle of how these are intertwined and how they, um, how they have influenced each other. And you mentioned earlier about this argument that you hear that design cannot exist outside of capitalism. And as I was reading this first section, and even as we're talking now, I'm actually wondering the opposite. Does does capitalism exist outside of design? Mm. Um, you know, is design in some way the sort of accelerator of the capitalism that we know today? Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that it is. I don't know if it's the accelerator. I think it is one accelerator. And I actually think that um, it, it's one accelerator that pairs well with another one, <laughs> which is one that has been commented on a lot, which is the technological innovation. And I mm. think you know, my perspective uh, on this, we, we talked a little bit before the interview about kind of our, our backgrounds. Um, yeah. You know, I, I come from a background in, in graphic design. And over the course of the last 20 years or so, I've, I've really watched what the kinds of skill sets that go into being a, a visual communicator, a graphic designer, um, you know, being able to create, uh, you know, meaningful and impactful and perhaps persuasive communications in an outwardly facing kind of public way. I mean, how that has mapped into um, the um, kind of the explosion of the digital economy Mm -hmm. um, in the ways that that those kinds of skill sets map very nicely to becoming someone who can, um, you know, pair up with the interests of making new technologies that become products and services. Um, uh, I, I talk, I sort of like this idea that, you know, that designers work in various ways, I think, to domesticate emerging technologies, which is yeah, to bring them yeah. into that 
um, human scale to, to sort of nestle them intimately into our everyday lives. Yeah. And that, that was not the, that was not at least clearly in my mind, the predominant function of graphic design when I was an undergraduate student, that it would, that it would be for uh, the making of, uh, of digital products and services. So I think that, uh, so if, to take the bigger view of history, um, I, I do think that, um, you know, design is an accelerant in, in part because it, it is a change maker. You know, it, it does uh, accelerate change uh, and it materializes that change, even if it does through in uh, seemingly immaterial ways. I, I think it's interesting. This idea of design domesticating, I think, is exactly right. I have a, a line in my notes that design solidifies mm. uh, in, in many ways. Um, this sort of definition of design that I like to use a lot is that design is ideologies made artifact. Mm. And I don't mean artifact as in physical products, but it, it makes them concrete or tangible in some way where we can no longer see a way outside of them. And, you know, when you, when you're talking about this history, you bring up things like planned obsolescence, which we think of uh, sort of in the digital space, but you go back to like the early Ford cars had things where they would do these kind of slight stylistic updates to make somebody buy a new a new vehicle. And I'm sorry, I have to I have to intervene only briefly because okay, okay. <laughs> only to set only to, only to uh, maybe vindicate Ford because it okay. was actually Ford's Ford's uh, approach was actually the opposite. I mean, he's you know sort oh, of Henry oh, Ford right, in particular, right, notorious right. for you know you get what you get. Um, but it was actually um, Alfred Sloan uh, during that's his right, tenure right. at, at General Motors that pushed for rapid stylistic changes, and this was this was the moment that Gen that General Motors, you know, quickly outpaced and became the the bigger and more valuable company than Ford. So it it proved its um, its economic value through design. That's right. I've just exposed my complete lack of car knowledge. <laughs> I am not a car person at all, and so Ford, GM, they're all the same. Today. And that's why know. I have to clarify in the book. Yeah. I mean, I, the the fact that I that I grew up in Metro Detroit has has right. has a, right. a reason oh, for some of the the metaphors oh. that I give. <laughs> oh, I'm so I'm so embarrassed. Um, yes, that is right. It was it was GM. It was not it was not Ford. Um, but but I, I the the question that I'm kind of getting to with that is, you know, design in many ways is this sort of, or can be in its best form, be this sort of democratic thing. It can be this thing that, that you know, makes things available to more people. And, and so how does it do that and then also get subsumed in capitalism where it then becomes something that creates hierarchy, creates different, creates desire? Can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the interplay between these two systems and the tensions that you see in looking at this history? So I think that, I mean, the, what, you, what you said about the kind of democratic, you know, ideals of, of what, what design might, might offer, um, you know, this, I think this is one of the central ideas of the, the, the good to form or the good design movement that mm -hmm. um, was emanating in post-war Europe at uh, places like Ulm and to some degree in Basel. And, and it was, I think, the case that, um, that that underlying agenda, I mean, it's, you know, it's on the one hand, we, we who have studied design and design history, you know, it'd be hard to miss, you know, some of, some of these stories or some of these artifacts or some of these names, you know, from this post-war period of European design. Um, but we have to remember that in the 1960s that we're, we're talking about, you know, 20 years after, you know, World War II. I mean, like mm -hmm. just like actually existing, um, you know, fascism and all of the horrors of that were were living memory. And so that that, that those intentions uh, built into uh, that design movement, um, I, I think were were somewhat lost when it was exported both right, uh, you know right. uh, around the world but also over time you know and so uh, what appears as a kind of uh, i'd say in its own way kind of a strongly ideolo ideological uh, political social cultural rationale for a design movement um in a different context you know looks like another another option on the shelf you know right, and right. i think that's um some of what happened when uh, and for example, when that movement exported to the United States. I wonder like kind of how you think about 
that that exporting and that that co-opting because when mm. you when you get into the alternatives and you talk about things like the situationists or the the Univer- veritas project that ambas is which is, i'm a big fan of that project so i loved seeing that in uh in the book Th- these so often seem either a radical and niche or b things that have become tools of capitalism so they either stay on the margins or capitalism sort of the system sort of takes them and refurbishes them to make them that other option on the shelf yeah how 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 do we negotiate that or do you have thoughts on sort of um kind of maintaining that ideological purity or ways to start to kind of move those things out of the margins and into the center yeah, it's great. And it's, it, I mean, it is one of the, I think, central challenges of the whole proposition of the book, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, how, how capitalism has proven itself incredibly resilient <laughs> at mutating into new right. forms in order to commodify. And this is, you know, coming from your, you know, your knowledge of critical theory, you know, even those things which were, you know, at, at the start were directly oppositional right. <laughs> to it. Right. Right. Um, and so this is part of the reason for, you know, um, hopefully not too gratuitously covering some of, I think, you know, design's intersection with social movements like punk and hip hop, you know, which also, you know, pretty rapidly become commodified um, cultural forms that start as resistances to the system. So I I don't think, I I don't think, I think the history of utopian thinking would show us that ideological purity is going to be a dead end (laughs) because it quickly becomes, it quickly becomes a a totalizing kind of thing. And it, um, I think quickly becomes dystopian. But I do think what I'm after, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this from someone kind of on the, as, as much on the inside as, as I can, uh, as, I, as I feel that I am of, you know, design as, as a professional field, but design is also kind of a, a cultural activity, as an economic activity, as a political and social activity, which is to, to ask us to think about what it is for. I mean, how do we orient it? What, what mm-hmm. is its purpose? And I think it's very hard for us to answer that question today without pointing towards things like economic growth. And so I don't know that we, I don't, I don't believe, again, I think ideological purity might be a dangerous proposition, but also I don't think that there's only one or maybe even like a a closed small set of motivations for saying uh, that this orientation that I'm calling for might look like something that moves beyond capitalism, acknowledging some of the productive gains that capitalism has given to the world, acknowledging, um, I think, the benefits of things like free mm-hmm. enterprise, but thinking about what the, the bigger, I, dare I say, human purpose of all of those things yeah. might actually be. And I think if we actually ask ourselves, uh, you know, whether we're you know, in the classroom or um, you know, in, in the studio or, uh, you know, in, in the boardroom, wherever we find ourselves making decisions related to design, that if we really ask ourselves that, that question seriously and don't sort of delude ourselves with our own hype, that we have to start answering it in ways that go beyond it's just for competitive advantage. Right. And I think there can be a lot of different answers for that, but that is pointing towards something that is beyond this kind of ideological envelope that we call capitalism. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's I, I promise that I'm I'm not as like negative and pessimistic as my line of questioning is. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of taking us down, but because um, I, I am going to kind of turn this in a second. But you know, I am thinking about sort of when you write about participatory design and and you know you kind of draw on Matt Melpass's book on critical design about like participatory design started out as a very radical thing, um, and and is doing those things that you're talking about, and then it has become sort of codified into a set of tools or workshops or templates to to create a competitive advantage or something something i i often tell my students half in jest half half not is that there's no such thing as human-centered design or user-centered design it's actually corporation-centered design Mm. or commerce-centered design a lot of what we say when we're doing user testing is like well how can we get them to click this button faster so they Mm. check out faster it's like um uh somebody somebody had this great line about all design is a trap Mm. um and you you this conversation has stayed very on on like a very kind of theoretical level so far, and you you do a really nice job of actually kind of bringing it down to uh, really kind of tangible ways to think about designing post 
capitalist or designing anti-capitalist as little things of kind of shifting from user to constituent to go back to kind of yeah. my joke about human-centered design or even the idea of decentering the user which i found really profound can you talk about some of these sort of tools and ideas that you use to kind of actually give examples were, were there any that were kind of especially exciting to you or um even surprising to you about ways people are kind of going about this? Yeah, and I mean, I think I think there are, but just to, to zoom out a little bit, I think it, ha it, it ha this also happens at multiple scales. And I'm not going to mm. go back to the hyper objects, like, maybe not that <laughs> big, but but when I when I get to the end of the book where I'm I'm calling out what I believe are some guidelines for um, for, for making this kind of reorientation and. Um, it, it hinges around a couple of core principles that I'm identifying in the book that I think are principles that can help us think about moving beyond capitalism. And, and those principles could apply to a lot of different fields that are not designed. But when I put them in, when into kind of the lens of what this looks like, you know, in the practice of doing design, if that is your, you know, your day-to-day -day livelihood, um, that it means thinking about these things at the level of the project, because we are doing projects all the time mm -hmm. and maybe multiple mm -hmm. projects at a given time, but it can't only be there. It has to also move up to the next level, which is um, the practice in which you are operating. So while we're doing mm -hmm. projects, we're also doing them as part of some kind of practice. And this is where, you know, the, maybe the little touch point of a small something that happens inside a project can connect to something bigger, which is like, how do we operate as a, as a studio, as a business, or as an individual freelancer? How do we engage with the people that, you know, would hire our services, the other, uh, you know, other people whose services we might hire and doing the work that we do. Um, and then the next level up is to think about it through the lens of the discipline, which is, you know, what, what kinds of logics, what kinds of language, what kinds of case studies are we producing to share out and to sort of celebrate that this is what design is for, this is what it actually can do. And I guess the reason I'm zooming out, I know you wanted to get down to like something more <laughs> like on the yeah, ground, yeah. No, 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 but the reason I'm sort part. of zooming out to say that is that I think that it matters. The context can be very, very different, but I think if we're trying to apply uh, that kind of thinking and that kind of practice at these different scales, this is where mm -hmm. actual change can start to happen. So, um, I guess to, to to go to your to to I guess respond to thinking about you know users or consumers or clients instead as constituents is to also say that um, you know based on my you know, this is just based on, you know, lived working experience, not on any kind of theory I've seen, you know, designers operate in this really kind of middle position. You know, mm -hmm. I have sat in situations where I have directed masses of massive amounts of, of money and labor and materials and research and technological development, you know, not on my own, uh, on behalf of somebody else who's, you know, footing right. the bill or has some project in mind. Um, but I'm making those decisions because I'm in the, in the position to make those decisions. And, it's, I think, those kinds of middle positions that also can bring around to these people that we anonymously imagine as the, you know, the users out there somewhere or the consumers out right. there somewhere, but the people on the other side of the equation who are, you know, the, you know, quote unquote clients or, <laughs> or whatever else they might be, the patrons of the project, whatever it is. And I think the point of introducing this term constituent is to think that we are working in service to both and maybe to break up a little bit this kind mm. of this triad or this hierarchy. Um, that, that maybe we're actually working in ways to put them into communication to, to do things better or differently to a mutual benefit. So coming back all the way back around, I mean, what does that look like in practice? Um, when, I've, when I've done, you know, book talks, one of the sort of formats I'm trying to, been working on or trying to actually insisting upon a little bit is that I'll talk about the book for a little bit, but I need somebody from the hosting organization to ask some questions because I can't, mm. I can't possibly imagine all of the contexts where, these kinds of guidelines I'm proposing would be used. So, I mean, I was recently invited by a, a group of, of advertising and marketing professionals to talk about this. <laughs> and it was like, oh, wow. I mean, wow. <laughs> you know, unimaginable to me, like how yeah. are advertising executives going to use this book? Well, I don't know, but you know, it, it led to a really fascinating conversation that, that also is to think about how do we do this at the level of a conversation with this client about this particular campaign that wants to build some kind of you know cultural awareness of XYZ, but then also how do we organize our business and how do we do things differently? Um, I, I, I gave a, one of my early book talks was um, hosted by Google. Uh, oh, wow. Again, <laughs> another moment where it was 
hard to picture when I was writing the book that I would be talking about post-capitalism at Google. Um, but another another moment to, to think about how Google is a place where there are something like a thousand UX designers, and um, it is a, a, a large, uh, you know, very large enterprise that has been criticized and perhaps should be criticized in a lot of ways. But it's also made up a, a lot of people. <laughs> and those individual people actually do sometimes stand up and walk out um, when things aren't going well. And so the kinds of conversations where the principles can lead to uh, thinking that can affect the project uh, scale, um, the practice scale, the discipline scale. Uh, I can't. I can't imagine all of them. <laughs> so I need right, to. I, right. I try to. I try to think about that sort of sliding scale. Argue for that sliding scale. But then in the book, it comes down to this list of I think it's like sixty-four. How might we questions? And my my hypothesis anyway is that if we were to ingest and sort of repetitively ask those how might we questions. It doesn't have to be all of them at the same time. I think it's too much too much to think all at the same time again, but to, to focus in on a few of those questions and ask them every time we're making a decision at the level of the project, the practice, or the discipline, I think we would start to answer for ourselves what this is for and start to name that new orientation that probably has a better title than after capitalism. I mean... It- that is actually exactly what I was thinking about as you were saying that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences you see, or even if there are differences between post-capitalism, which is kind of what we've been talking about. But you also talk a lot in the book about anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that anti-capitalism or or design that is like actively anti-capitalist um, can exist in a capitalist system in a way that post, I mean, obviously post-capitalist, those things can work in post-capitalist, but there's actually something really profound about being anti-capitalist in a capitalist system. And I'm thinking about things like the commons and open source, which you write about, or worker-owned co-ops. Um, I mean, you, for example, have a website with most of the content of the book online freely available, which is a very anti-capitalist sort of uh, position. How c- can you just talk a little bit about kind of the anti-capitalist side, or or kind of injecting these within the capitalist system? Yeah, um, and I, I, I mean, I'll admit that I, I mean, in thinking about it, it's hard to draw that as like a really crisp line. But right, I, I think, understand. Yeah, but I do think that I mean, if I were to to, to draw out, I think some of the Mm, like the, the significant differences in the way that I would, would consider those two, um, I guess, positions. I mean, one could be uh, fully anti-capitalist, anti-capitalist in a way that does, uh, does nothing to shift things more generally. I mean, you know, there are mm-hmm. plenty of examples of people who practice a kind of escapism, right. you know, from the system. Right, I'm right. just going to go, you know, take care of myself and just step out, <laughs> right? Um, right? Right. There are those, uh, I guess, practices or positions, or uh, I don't know what you call them, but maybe political movements that are um, that are that are doing that kind of escapism at maybe even a larger scale. And so, like the long history of intentional communities and things right. like this, I right. think is, is also really fascinating. Um, anti-capitalism and its uh, its practices, I think, can be directly antagonistic. You know, it can be about mm. sabotaging the system from various positions. I'm right. uh, again, I don't want to go too, too, too far down the rabbit hole, but I'm, I've been really inspired by, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I'm really inspired by some of the kind of social and political history of what was happening and particularly in Italy in yeah. the late sixties and seventies um, around some of the autonomia or the autonomous political movements. And I, I think one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by that is that we saw in that moment also a specific kind of, um, you know, alternative vision of design come out of that from the, the actually lived experiences of the designers that were living through that, through that movement. And I think we start to see in there um, some of the seeds of what this, you know, this post-capitalist or after-capitalist thing could be, which is like, we're actually, we're not trying to just create a new kind of economy. And so, uh, you know, the, the argument inside that historical moment would be that, you know, the striking factory workers who were, you know, hanging out with the, the young feminists and the striking students, it wasn't that they were trying to just, you know, get better wages, but they wanted a different way of life. They didn't want the economy right. to structure their entire society. And I think those are the kinds of things that um, if we combine that with, again, uh, being cognizant of some of the 
I'd say productive gains of capitalism for the last, you know, 300 years or more that we can imagine that there are different ways that we can put these productive gains to different uses. And so um, for a variety of reasons, I think that, uh, you know, the space of digital technologies is just one of those spaces that while it has been co-opted over and over and over again, I still remain somehow maybe naively optimistic that there are still are <laughs> opportunities for us to make use of um, uh, sort of right. what we've gained with different ends in mind. And so I know that's not a really, really crisp definition or, or really crisp distinction, but I think to begin to qualify as being something that's more about after capitalism, it is striving towards the not fully baked vision, but kind of right. this horizon that is about a different kind of social structure um, that includes a different kind of economy, not maybe as the only governing force of it, right? And so this is, I think, right. different right. than, um, you know, choosing which job you do or choosing just to like walk out of the system altogether. I I read that you really started thinking about the ideas in this book um, when you were teaching a speculative design class called Design After Capitalism. And you you wrote in, in this kind of short piece that I read about how hard that class was <laughs> and, and, and sort of the ideas that began to germinate in that class. And I'm, I'm wondering sort of how you, how you approach these ideas in a classroom setting. And I'm, I'm speaking, you know, from my own experience as somebody who likes to inject a lot of ideas like this into the class, um, you know, how often students are sort of really animated by these ideas, but then also thinking about all the student loans that they just took out to be there and mm -hmm. needing to still get a job in this capitalist system. Um, how do you sort of approach that? Or how do you kind of, uh, you know, how do you kind of introduce a lot of these ideas in the classroom setting? Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, I'll start by saying that initially, I would say just very <laughs> upfront, <laughs> candidly, <laughs> and without a whole lot of, uh, notion of like how it would go. And so that's, that's just to address, um, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, even the title of the book came out of the speculative design course that I was teaching that I, that I taught for about five years um, at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and, and if I could, maybe I could just hang there for just a second. It was, I was um, uh, in, you know, throughout kind of the, I don't know, 2010s or whatever, I had become in, interested in and maybe enamored a little bit with speculative design because it did mm -hmm it did uh, echo some of this kind of thinking out of critical theory and other kinds of, mm -hmm. um, I'd say, cultural criticisms of the, of the political economy of, of our present time. Particularly uh, interesting to me, I think, that, that these criticisms became sort of animated within design at the same time that designers were uh, sort of increasingly doing this work of domesticating technology. So the idea right, that even right. this, this idea of critical design really comes from personal computing and then the internet and then the smartphone. And, um, and so I became really interested in speculative design. I was teaching it. It was a, a studio that involved students from, or included students from, uh, from industrial design, uh, visual communication design and fashion design to, to try to grapple with, with, uh, you know, thinking about speculative design, but, but to, to anchor that in um, an idea of what could design look like in a post-capitalist society. Mm -hmm. So you have to somewhat think about what that would what that world would look like, and then you have to design for it, which is a kind of speculative exercise. Um, I along the way, I should say that I, I started to feel the what's the word here? I don't know. Feel the pinch of, of speculative design that it's it, it just wasn't enough for me. You know, I, I think that I um, I saw both in 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 the the world of that kind of work and in the, the work that my students were doing these kinds of you know sometimes ironic dystopian possibilities mm -hmm. that actually felt like mm, that is actually not so dystopian compared to what a lot of the world actually looks like. And so, <laughs> I mean, I, I actually do believe that to some degree speculative design uh, during kind of the 2010s, um, in some way, I think one of the functions it served, and I talk about this a little bit in the intro to the book, is it, it sort of stood out there, got heavily criticized and abused for, for being so, you know, Eurocentric, so, um, I mean, almost socially and politically regressive in the way yeah. that it was sort yeah. of, you know, like anchoring all future societies and all the sort of changes in society based on technological changes alone and not looking at some of the underlying, um, you know, other underlying social and political systems economic systems behind that. So 
okay, a big roundabout way to come back to the class, which was that when I introduced these topics, it was just like, let's, let's think about this. And I actually mm -hmm. even came to this title. Um, it was during the 2016 presidential election in the United States when this, um, this poll came out of uh, the Harvard Institute of Politics that said something like 51% of right. uh, young Americans aged 18 to 29 had, had polled as being, you know, not in favor of capitalism. And I was just like, wow, you know, again, right. not having brushed with, you know, you know, sort of anti-capitalist or what other, you know, socialist or Marxist thinking. I was like, this is not a fringe thing at all. I mean, this is, this is the majority of my classroom. And right. I see students come through the classroom who are excited at the prospect of the kind of creative professional career that being a designer affords. You know, you're not sitting in a cubicle. You're, you know, you're sort of working with your imagination and your mind and working with others to materialize different possibilities for the world. And yet, <laughs> looking at the world around and saying, but this doesn't look good. I mean, what else can we do? And so I think those things sort of aligned as kind of the impetus of the class to begin to think about that. And it was so hard. I mean, it was so, so hard, particularly <laughs> the first imagine. couple sessions of the class. I mean, students and myself included just could not seem to like think our way past, um, you know, all of, I think the, the kind of the assumptions rolled into like what design is yeah. uh, to get there. But we did. I mean, we, we worked at it over and over and over again. Uh, I think I taught the class for five years in a row. And, uh, and, and I, and I want to, again, give credit to some really amazing students who, who helped shape my thinking a lot through the kinds of conversations that we had in that class. Now that I've sort of taken that starting point and talked about it a lot, uh, done a lot more, you know, I'd say reading research, but also talking to people research and talking to <laughs> designers and practitioners and theorists and all those great kinds of people, um, I, I, I have, I think, finally for myself built a more clear understanding of how to talk about these things, which is good. Uh -huh. um, and now I, I also, I've been doing, you know, lectures for students around what I call design economics, which is oh, even if we take aside everything I've said in this book called Design After Capitalism, kind of admitting that we don't really talk about what it means. We don't really talk about the economics of design very much. And I've heard students many times sort of complain about that. Like, oh, you should have taught us like how to you know, be a freelancer. And you should have taught us how much to charge and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah. You know, I spent most of my career thinking like, whatever, just figure it out. Um, but it is consequential. <laughs> it's not just yeah. consequential in the sense that um, I don't want my students to get ripped off, which I don't, but I want them to actually think about the kind of institution making that they do when they start out to build their own practices, to think about how they make the kinds of economic and social decisions that they're making by building, uh, you know, building an institution, which is a design studio or becoming a part of a design team inside a larger organization, whether that's a, you know, corporate organization or a nonprofit organization or something else. Um, to think about the fact that they are they are situated in the making of a kind of economic model and that they have choices that they can make, but they need to be aware of that first to then mm -hmm. be able to make decisions. I, that, that leads really nicely into uh, sort of my last kind of big question, which is I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the trajectory of your own work and your career. You mentioned earlier that you studied graphic design. You worked as an interaction designer. You were you were you moved to academia. You're teaching classes in speculative design. You're currently a PhD researcher in transition design. Can you sort of talk just briefly about sort of that move from graphic to interaction to speculative to transition, and maybe how all of this research and how a lot of this conversation we're having has kind of influenced that trajectory? Sure. I mean, I guess I should start by saying I'm probably. Um, both a slow learner <laughs> and a relentlessly dissatisfied individual. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I feel like we might be the same. Yeah. I um, and I it. say a slow learner because it, it, I feel like it, it takes me a while to, to spend time doing something to be able to, you know, sort of think it through thoroughly, you know. Um, and I say relentlessly dissatisfied because then when I think it through thoroughly, <laughs> I'm kind of unhappy with what I've discovered. And so it's time to, to try something else, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I studied uh, graphic design. I, I say it dramatically, you know, at the, the turn of the millennium. <laughs> I mean, I started, started my undergraduate career at the, the end of the 20th century and, and graduated into the early 21st century. And, you know, I was really fortunate, I think, to have studied with um, I, I think I can politely call kind of an old guard <laughs> of graphic design mm -hmm. instructors. And 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I teach now at the university of Cincinnati where I studied as an undergraduate student. So I actually teach, huh. um, I teach students design research methods. I teach about design economics. I even teach students how to do, uh, use open source technologies to write algorithms, to do graphic design in the oh, same nice. room where I used to paint letters with Plaka. And for <laughs> any listeners who aren't familiar with Plaka, it's a very, a very thick, uh, watercolor paint that only comes in black and white and is very difficult to use. But under the watchful eye of uh, Swiss designer uh, Heinz Schenker, I was drawing and just pulling, you know, perfect tails to the lowercase a and all kinds of you know, nice typographic curves. Um, and so I stand in that same room today and I, I talk a lot about <laughs> open source technologies and things like that. Um, I was fortunate, I think, to have also studied with, uh, you know, people who were who were a part of this, uh, you know, mid 20th century uh, kind of design movement. So another person I studied with named Robert Probst, um, he he studied at Basel and then later worked for Odell Eicher in his studio mm-hmm. in Ulm. And he's told some uh, incredible wow. stories of the political and sort of cultural ideology of Odell Eicher and, and going to meetings with him <laughs> and, yeah. and the things that they would or would not do based on principle. Wow. Um, you know, so so I, I graduated uh, with th- that kind of background and I think that kind of framing of design then into an early career in what I sometimes call like the Wild West of, <laughs> of interaction design. I mean, we weren't, I think, really doing interaction design. We we're doing more like, you know, making things move and click, maybe more responsive design. Um, but it was a really kind of fascinating time because it was this kind of open space, you know, like what the web was for and what you could do there. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun until it wasn't. And it became, you know, uh, not only, you know, increasingly commodified, but also templatized and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, for a while, I worked as an exhibition designer, working primarily in art museums, which put me into a whole different sort of range of dialogues with, you know, art historians and critical theorists and and that kind of thing, but also in another kind of middle position between having to deal with you know, the, the folks that, that, you know, right. run art museums and also sponsor art museums and the people who, you know, build the walls and paint the walls and run security and install the artwork. And so right. um, I think that was a great eye opener to, to myself uh, coming from, you know, the world of, you know, early days of interaction design, sitting at my cool little desk, <laughs> making weird things on the web to like, oh, I'm like responsible for a lot of people and a lot of money yeah. and, and this kind of stuff. Um and then eventually I started my own practice um, in Chicago and, and I tried to bring together, you know, these different skill sets, but with, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, it wasn't really clearly defined, kind of a, a set of values for the kind of work that I was interested in doing. Um, in the middle there, there was 2008 uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, the sort of the big financial crisis that happened, which was probably the first time I think I ever started to wonder what this word economy meant. Right? Like right. I really, I really right. had no, I think, grasp of what what that could possibly mean, and I certainly didn't understand it in two thousand eight or two thousand nine or two thousand ten <laughs> in the immediate aftermath. But it did start to make me wonder what was happening and why it was that uh, during two thousand eight I was working for a pretty large uh, multidisciplinary studio, and it was like you know people were getting laid off left and right, but it was you know the only response was like let's work harder and let's like, let's get back to normal as fast as possible. And I was like, uh, not sure if that's a great idea. <laughs> it looks, right. like, it yeah. looks like that wasn't working so well. So it was the kind of like the kind of wake up call for which there was only a very slow response. <laughs> like a decade later, I wrote right. this book. <laughs> um, and sort of along the way, having moved into an academic space, which I think like a lot of people coming out of design practice and into design education was kind of more of a stumble than a clear step, just started teaching and just kept going and, and found, you know, found a kind of love for the enthusiasm, but also the skepticism of, of mm-hmm. young people who are interested in making a career out of design. Um, mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant, uh, imaginative and amazing young souls who are also really wondering what kind of world they're going to build or what kind of world they're going to perpetuate. And um and I think it's a really exciting place to be and to have these conversations. So I feel very fortunate to, to be able to do that. I love that. There, I, I think it was Eric Hyman, when I talked to him on the show, he said, I'm a, 
in design practice, I'm a pessimist, but in the classroom, I'm an optimist. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 I sort of relate to that. And I kind of hear that in your sort of this sort of skepticism of the practice. And then you can kind of go into, into the classroom and actually really like wrestle with those yeah. and sort of imagine. I mean, and it does mean not giving up, right? I mean, <laughs> it means, yeah. it means that it's, it, you know, to, to the earlier question about anti versus post-capital, it's, it's not, it's about not escaping um, but about you know continuing to, to to try to 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 forge something that that we might call better in whatever way that yeah. we sort of frame our values around that. You mentioned at the end, or you mentioned in the previous question about sort of the move into transition design, and so I am yeah, currently pursuing um, a PhD in the transition design program at Carnegie Mellon, and I will admit that when that when that program first launched, um, you know maybe uh, I don't know maybe about a decade ago, I remember Terry Irwin. Yeah. kind of making the rounds yeah. and talking about it. And I was so skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, come on. Um, but watching the program mature and evolve and, and sort of seeing some of the amazing uh, people and ideas coming out of it, I, I guess I have um, really sort of fallen, fallen in line enough to agree with the position of the program that I'm now there um, yeah. uh, studying there. And I think that the proposition is that we are in this transitional time and we see uh, a lot of the, uh, major systems, if we can use that, that big of a word, systems of modernity are really kind of collapsing around us. And uh, it's not just designers in the kind of professional sense of graphic designers or product designers or UX designers or whatever, but we need uh, a, lot of, a lot of people focused on making a, a very long-term transition to a different kind of world. Um, we need people right. working on right. disparate projects in highly interdisciplinary ways. And we need to just get comfortable with the fact that the, the projects we're working on or the goals that we have in mind are probably not going to happen in our lifetimes. We need right, to be comfortable right. with working on a, a long-term scale where we um, can, can maybe measure thresholds or milestones, but that we are thinking about sort of all of the, the big and small acts that we're doing being aligned with a, a massive transition. And um, you can probably see why that appeals to me yeah, <laughs> because yeah. that's sort of what, what I think I was after with this book. And um, and sort of being in that program has given me a great opportunity, I think, to both like extend and, and deepen some of these ideas and um, is, is certainly kind of the, the foundation for the dissertation research that I'm, that I'm starting to work on now. I think that's a great way to wrap up. I have one final question that I used to end all of these, but I do have to just respond to something that you said. I, I, I really liked how you said, you know, and kind of talking about that skepticism um, that that you you know there's always more work to do there's always like more you can't give up and i i laughed out loud when i got to the last sentence in the book which i hope is okay <laughs> i mean i have to i have to give credit i always have to have a little backstory to give credit but uh it, the american oh, sociologist eric olin wright was a big inspiration um we we met and, and and collaborated or at least you know exchanged a lot of ideas near the end of his life and he told me one time that if uh, if he had a bumper sticker <laughs> to summarize yeah. his his sort of ethos on the issues he was after, his bumper sticker would say, "You can never relax." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sadly, Eric Wright died soon after he told me that, but I kept that squarely in mind, and uh, that is the last line of the book. I mean, it, it it cracked me up because I was like, "Oh, you can never relax." That's also like the motto of capitalism, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was such a great uh, joke. So so speaking of that, and to wrap up. Um, the last question is, is I'm curious kind of what you're reading right now. So when you, when you do get to relax, uh, what, uh, how are you spending your time? What are you reading? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say I'm not reading anything to relax right now because <laughs> you never can, but I, I, um, and this is, this is aligned with some of the, you know, the, the research I'm doing, um, in the transition design program. But, um, so the author, uh, Mark Fisher, who some, some listeners mm -hmm. may be aware of, he, yeah. he wrote a, a book called capitalist realism. He used to blog under the name K punk and has right. a lot to, has had a lot to say with, um, kind of cultural analysis in, in, in late or whatever stage capitalism we're in now. He, he put a, he was putting on a course at Goldsmiths, um, in the winter semester of 2016, 2017 called, uh, post-capitalist desire. And uh, tragically, in the middle of that course, he ended his own life. But the mm -hmm. first uh, five or six lectures that he gave in the course were recorded and transcribed. And the reading list and the syllabus were, uh, were, were published uh, a year or two ago. And so in that book, in the book, which is titled Post-Capitalist Desire, it is kind of a, a record of this class that he started teaching but never finished. So mm -hmm. I have, over the summer, um, taken it up to basically take Mark Fisher's class. And I've been... Um, sort of oh, wow. uh, very rigorously following 
the 15 week uh, <laughs> reading assignment, which is pretty heavy, but very interesting. And I, I, it's, it's really um, teed me up to think about uh, the way in which design uh, participates in the making of desire and how that might be part of this reorientation to a kind of desire that's beyond capitalism. I love that. I'm a big Mark Fisher fan. The 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 K Punk collected essays. There was la- it was last summer, or two summers ago. Just every day, I would read another one of those. I just yeah, continual inspiration. I was not aware of that, so I'm gonna have to gonna have to go through that too. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I really loved your book and kind of talking to you about all of these ideas. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. This episode was recorded on August 11th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.